You're listening to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand. The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in the things that never change. Never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome, everybody, to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, reveal how the world really works. And one way the world really works is by marriage. And one way the world works really well is by great marriages. Or, to put it another way, every man, I think, eventually, at some point, realizes he wants to be in a terrific marriage. Every woman does as well, excepting women usually realize that much, much earlier than men do. But uh, men really do uh, want to be in a happy marriage. Uh, They are frightened. Men are unquestionably frightened about uh, the seemingly lack of of control they have. Uh, If a marriage goes bad and what could go wrong, uh, men are terrified. There's no question about it. Which is why um, one of the kinds of books that men do buy um, are books that carry titles like Happy Life Happy Wife, Happy Life. That's just an example. Uh, There are many like that. But the actual phrase, Happy Wife, Happy Life, that struck me, and I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a moment. But uh, I thought that we should talk about that a little bit. So that's exactly what we're going to do. I'm so happy you're tuned in. I very much appreciate you listening to the show. And needless to say, Those of you who've been so effective in telling other people about the show, I appreciate that very much indeed as well. Uh, I want to tell you about two things that happened on Thanksgiving. One was that um, somebody at the Thanksgiving meal at which Susan Lappin and I were guests uh, used the phrase, happy wife, happy life. And uh, I uh, looked up quickly to see if anybody was catching on to that, uh, whether that was, uh, whether it was appropriate for me to do um, just a little clarification on that. But what I noticed was that uh, everybody just, yeah, happy wife, happy life. And, you know, some of the some of the men smiled. A couple of the women I saw rolled their eyes. But uh, by and large, it seemed to me that most people were pretty much okay with that phrase. So uh, it turns out that uh, it's a phrase that's been around for a long time. There are, I don't know, maybe half a dozen books that have it in the title, Happy Wife, Happy Life. And so I decided that Thanksgiving was not the time for me to be a party pooper and uh, tell everybody what's wrong with that s- phrase. And so I, uh, I, I let it go. But I'm not letting it go right here with you. No, sorry. Uh, I'm going to tell you exactly what's wrong with that phrase. The second thing that happened was um, an eight-year-old girl, a guest at the table as well, a very uh, bright and eloquent and articulate young lady. And um, I was chatting with her, found her interesting. And uh, 
It turned out that she had a school book that she was expected to read over the Thanksgiving holiday. And the book was, Who is Marie Curie? Who is Marie Curie? And I asked if I could take a look at it. And uh, I did, and she'd obviously read the book. She, she knew uh, who Madame Curie uh, really was. And I glanced through the book. Now, here's just a little bit of the background. As I'm sure most of you know, Marie Curie uh, was a scientist who did groundbreaking work on radium and radioactivity um, in the early years of the 20th century. She died in about 1930, before World War II. Uh, she was born in Poland and uh, um, seems to have come from um, a, a poor family, but a distinguished family in, in the sense of uh, uh, the, the values the parents gave to the, the daughters. And uh, at any rate, Marie Curie wanted to study science, and she arrived, came to Paris in the last years of the 19th century, about 1890, 91, something like that, in the last decade of the 19th century. And she was introduced to a young scientist called Pierre Curie, and uh, he uh, originally took her on as a lab assistant, I believe, and within a short space of time, they had uh, gotten married, and they became came lifelong collaborators and partners, and they uh, they used to go on bicycle vacations together, and they studied together, and uh, they won distinguished science prizes together. At any rate, uh, Pierre Curie um, got run over by a wagon, a government wagon with a bunch of horses, um, when Marie Curie was 38, and um, he died. Um, she, four years later, took up with a married guy called Paul Langevin. French guy, I'm sure I pronounced that wrong. But uh, he was married, and um, she did her best to uh, separate him from his wife. She uh, pressured him and cajoled him to leave his wife and they can get married. Uh, at the end of this, Paul Langevin, by the way, uh, does not exactly seem to have been a man of high principles and good character. Uh, he'd had quite a few affairs. Marie Curie was one of them. He then, I think he had an illegitimate child with a secretary, uh, maybe after this. At any rate, uh, he did not, did not uh, listen to Marie Curie at the end of it all after the two of them had even taken their own apartment together. Um, <clears throat> Mrs. Mrs. Langevin found she got into the apartment somehow and found letters that Marie had written to her husband, Paul uh, Langevin, and um, she issued all kinds of threats. It became public. Uh, the Nobel Committee tried to persuade Madame Curie not to come to Sweden to accept the prize because uh, there was a feeling that an adulteress shouldn't shake the hands of a king. Quaint, isn't it? It sounds, it sounds like of a lost era, but this was in the 1930s, the first quarter of the 20th century. And uh, uh, if I remember correctly, she, she, ignored, she ignored that 
and she went to Sweden anyway. And, of course, there was a huge controversy at the time. Albert Einstein weighed in on it, and uh, he encouraged, oh, you should go. And, of course, the issue that got written about extensively, and some of it's kind of interesting to look at. It's, as I say, it reads as if it's rather quaint today, but uh, the the issue, of course, was is the behavior, the private behavior of the person of any relevance to their scientific achievement? And obviously, uh, Marie Curie, joined by Albert Einstein, said, no, it's got nothing to do with it. She's getting the prize for her scientific achievement, and that's all there is to it, and what she does in her private life is her own business. And then other people said, no, uh, the prize is, uh, is, is a larger acknowledgement of the person, and so if she is an adulteress um, and committed adultery with a married guy and tried to break up that family, uh, that, that is an issue. And obviously, people are debating that still to this very day. And uh, I'm not going to dive into that, but to take you back to my Thanksgiving meal, uh, I'm looking at the book. And obviously, uh, the first thing I'm curious about is surely the book doesn't mention anything about her scandalous affair with Paul Langevin. Why should it? It's all about Marie Curie, and the, the, the whole tone of the book is written to inspire little girls to go into science. I mean, that's, that's the, the gist of the book. And so I thought, uh, no way, no way they're going to mention her um, affair with Paul Langevin. Well, it doesn't take very long. And um, I find the relevant pages, and oh, yeah, oh, she fell in love. Oh, this was a wonderful thing. And believe me, I'm, I'm, I'm not reading out of the book right now, but I'm, I'm paraphrasing it. Uh, this was so great. The, the, she was a sad widow. She'd been alone for four years, but now she found happiness uh, in her uh, relationship with Paul Langevin, with whom she fell deeply in love. And then it says... Um, Marie Curie didn't intend falling in love with a married man, but what could she do? She did. That's what happened. And the, the whole gist of it is that you have to follow your heart, right? What could she do? She didn't intend falling in love with him, but once she did, obviously she had to pursue it. Well, I got to tell you, I was a bit flabbergasted by this. And I was delighted to discover that the little girl's mom uh, was aware of it and had already spoken to the school about the unsuitability of, uh, of the book for her, for her daughter's class. Not surprisingly, she was told by the teacher, oh, I haven't had time to review the book, but you're the only person who has complained. That's right. Today in schools, if you have anything resembling traditional pro-family values know that you are the outsider. At any rate, uh, we came home from Thanksgiving and uh, I looked up the author and uh, I discovered, yes, indeed, she actually had written several books for children. Uh, Megan Stein had not only written Who Was Marie Curie, but she'd also written Who Was Sally Ride. Now, you might remember that uh, Sally Ride was an astronaut 
who was actually due to go into space, I think on her second flight, when Challenger explosion took place and the whole program got set back. But um, she had a very prominent role in NASA. She was a student at Stanford. She, she was one of about 7,000 applicants when NASA advertised an opening in the astronaut program. She was selected, and, uh, and she had a very distinguished uh, career in, in, with NASA. Um, after she died in uh, 2012, um, it came out that she was uh, involved. She had a lengthy relationship with another woman described as her partner. Now, she had been married uh, to a fellow astronaut, a guy whose name I can't remember. It was a short-lived marriage. She was married for five years. And, um, and apparently soon thereafter, she formed this relationship, or maybe it was before, I don't know the details, but she had a long, uh, several decades relationship with, uh, with a woman. And so after she died, uh, it came out, the, this partner wrote about, uh, you know, that they'd been partners, and that's when it came out. So the same Megan Stein writes a book for little girls about Sally Ride, the astronaut. And not surprisingly, I turn right away through it, flipping through it, to see if, I mean, for heaven's sake, you want to inspire little girls for science, you want to inspire them to be astronauts. Okay, fine. I have no problem. That's great. You can do a terrific, inspiring book about Sally Ride. Go for it. But um, sure enough, towards the uh, second half of the, in the second half of the book, towards the end, um, Sally Ride discovered that she did not like being married to a man and that she preferred to be with women. Eight-year-old girls, right, are reading this. And um, it was only after she died from a disease in uh, 2012, I think, yeah, it was 2012. It was only after she died that, um, that people found out that she was really a lesbian. Well, um, that's a real shame because, and I'm, this is the book, Sally Ride could have done a great deal to advance the cause of the lesbian, gay, uh, transgender, homosexual community um, by disclosing it while she was still alive. It's very sad that she saw fit to keep that quiet. There was no reason for it to be quiet. She shouldn't have to have been embarrassed by it. She could have done a lot for advancing freedom for everybody by uh, um, acknowledging who she really was. Well, Sally Wright always acknowledged who she really was. She was um, being of Norwegian background. She was very taciturn about her personal life. She was always an astronaut. That's what she was. But for this book and for Megan Stein, the author of this book, for little girls, uh, that's not enough. It's a shame that astronaut Sally Ride didn't advance the lesbian uh, cause by coming out as a homosexual while she was still alive and she could have done something about it and spoken about it and really been helpful in that respect. Okay, yeah, I think we got that. Uh, that is what little girls are being given to read in school these days. And uh, what astonishes me is, is I've been chatting with people about it the last few days. Very few parents actually read the books that are given. Look, 
Don't for a moment think that the books your children are being given today are just about information. There is an agenda. Please be aware of it. The secular fundamentalist agenda is being aggressively pushed to your children, even through science books and through English literature books, everything. And it's at this young, impressionable age that it is all happening. And uh, it's, um, it's particularly concerning to me in the area of family, the area of sex, because that's so central to where we go. It's, it's a subject I'm, I'm to get that and money are the, the, the two joint topics I'm very much concerned about. Um, corrosion of both those things is what's happening in our culture at the moment, not just in the United States, but in, uh, entirely in, around the world. So what I'm going to suggest, I know many, many people have told me, and I love hearing about it, that if you listen to this show, many of you listen to this show together with your children, and I think that's wonderful. Uh, some of you listen with high school children, I, and even some of you I know who listen with uh, younger children, elementary age school children, and I've met some of the children at events uh, where you've brought the children, and I've been truly amazed. And some of them tell me what they've heard on the show and what they liked. So it's all very amazing. I'm going to suggest that maybe for this show uh, uh, some discretion should be um, advised. I, only you can decide what you want your children to hear or not to hear. Uh, there's nothing I'm going to say that uh, is in bad taste, but some of it may be, as, including this last stuff, by the way, in spite of the fact that it was in a book for eight-year-old little girls, that may well be something you don't want your children to hear me talking about. So there are going to be a few other things like that during the rest, the rest of the show, which you might decide. How about, you know, listen to it first by yourself and then decide if you want to listen to it with your children. I think that would be the best way to go. Um, okay, quick break. Um, this is the show's being recorded um, just before Giving Tuesday, which is when uh, certain gifts through certain mechanisms like PayPal are actually matched, and it becomes very valuable for the American Alliance of Jews and Christians, which I have the privilege of serving. Uh, an organization which essentially does what its title is, and it's an American alliance of Jews and Christians, excepting that in 2019 um, the decision has been made that we are going to expand beyond America. The, the issues being dealt with are too serious and not constrained by national borders, and so although it's called the American Alliance of Jews and Christians, we already have activity going on under the heading of the alliance uh, in other countries around the world, particularly Europe and Africa. So, um, more on that, but for right now, if you wouldn't mind going to the aajc.org site, AA American Alliance of Jews and Christians, aajc.org, and uh, you might then want to decide whether you find your heart pulled in the direction of making a gift to support the, the work that is done uh, by the American Alliance of Jews and Christians. If yes, that's absolutely great, and we appreciate it. And if no, fine, also good. We'll carry on with the show in just a moment. I'm sure that you 
now that you know that I'm about to dismantle, critique, slay, and eviscerate the slogan, happy wife, happy life, uh, you probably already are thinking to yourself of all the flaws, all the lies implicit in that little phrase. I'm sure you are. Uh, look, apart from anything else, a single slogan solution should always be distrusted. Um, life is too complicated. Uh, look, my, my motor car engine is too complicated for a, a single slogan solution. Um, always keep your engine lubricated and you'll have a long and happy relationship with your car. No, that's not the only issue. It's one of them. It's not the only one. Uh, life is infinitely more complicated than my motor car engine. And so, um, and, and among the most complex parts of life, of course, is marriage. So the notion that happy wife, happy life, that is the solution, uh, it's, it's not only wrong, but I think it's misleadingly dangerous. I, I think I even noticed uh, some of the men uh, who were in the gathering I, uh, I shared on Thanksgiving uh, who heard the uh, individual say, happy wife, happy life, um, I could see that I think several of them were saying, hmm, that makes sense. Gosh, yeah, all I, I mean, yeah, it's true if my wife... Look, there is no question about it, isn't it? There is no question about it that uh, that your marriage, mine, all of our marriages, uh, I'm speaking to men now, are definitely better when our wives are happy. The, it's, it's great for men when we hear our wife singing around the house or, or just walking with a light, happy step. Uh, that, that's good for us. We, we feel great about that because there is a part of us that has been hardwired to make our wives happy. I've spoken about this in the past, and I'll, I'll indicate it again. It, it's a very real thing. There's a very notable verse in Deuteronomy, uh, chapter 24, verse 5. And it goes something like this. When a man has taken a new wife, he should not go out to war, and neither should he be uh, uh, given any national service or any uh, uh, business placed upon his shoulders. He should be free to be at home for one full year and bring joy to his wife whom he just married. Um, interesting, all right, the point being, uh, ancient Jewish wisdom stresses that it doesn't say and enjoy being together with his wife whom he's married, or it doesn't say to be with his wife whom he's married so that they may bring joy to one another. It doesn't say that. It says only that he may bring joy to his wife. And this might perhaps be one of the instances I alluded to in the introduction to this show uh, regarding suitability for children. Uh, when I say that what the Bible is talking about there is the simple reality, which is that uh, for a man, knowing that he has brought joy to his wife is even more important and contributes greatly to whatever he feels himself. Uh, that is it's fundamental to the relationship and therefore is reflected in the reality of the sexual union.
that bringing joy to the wife is physical, but it's also spiritual. And uh, it is a characteristic of the rest of a happy marriage. So the idea of having a happy wife, uh, making for a happy life, it's, it's not without merit. It's not without merit because we do feel more fulfilled when we're in a happy marriage. And what makes for a happy marriage? When our wives are joyful, when they're happy, when they're, when, when, when they're seeming to enjoy being married to us. That is good for us as well. That's just how that works. The question, of course, is how do you have a happy wife? And uh, some of the books I glanced at that uh, contain that slogan in their title uh, are uh, misleading. They're, they're pitifully incomplete and, in many cases, incorrect. Uh, one of them, for instance, just has a whole list of things to be doing for your wife. Uh, remember dates that are important to her, bring her flowers, make her breakfast in bed, etc., etc., etc. Look, you, you do all of those things, and if that is the centerpiece of your marriage, then you're not going to have a happy wife, you're not going to have a happy marriage, because eventually she's going to feel that she is married to a doormat. She's, she's going to feel that she's married to somebody who doesn't seem to have a life beyond bringing her breakfast in bed doesn't work as an occasional treat as something as something that shows that you appreciate her at all times yeah i think that's terribly important find a way that you appreciate her and that you f- you feel happy to be married to her yeah th- that's all valuable but uh, but this entire happy wife happy life uh, piece of advice was just all of these things that you ought to do for your wife. Uh, what's, what's wrong with that? Well, partially what's wrong with that is that we find meaning in the things we do rather than in the things that are done for us. This is one of the reasons that money that men earn is far more precious to them than money they win, gambling or lottery or anything else. When we earn money, it makes us happy when we just get it winning it where we didn't somebody gave it to us even charitably that makes us miserable because we derive ultimate happiness from the things we do not from the things that are done for us similarly it's also true that we love we we feel close connection to those for whom we do the most it's counterintuitive a little bit, isn't it? You'd think that uh, we'd feel particularly close to those who do everything for us. But that isn't correct. Our major commitment is for those to whom we or for whom we do a great deal. Um, if you work for a charity, if you serve a charitable organization, uh, you feel very committed. It's odd. You should feel discharged you should feel i don't owe them anything but it's not how you feel because the more you do for somebody the more you feel closer to them the more you feel obligated to help this is one of the reasons that we feel closer to our children than our parents not that our parents did to their children but we we feel closer to our children than we do to our parents 
right? And we have all kinds of, we say, that, well, that's the way of the world. Um, you know, they felt that way towards us. Uh, we feel that way towards our children. They understand we don't reciprocate to them exactly the same level of love and commitment that they felt to us. That we move forward on to our children. We have all ways of explaining that. But the basic reality is something we all understand. Why do we feel much more for our children than our parents? Well, because our parents did much more for us than we ever did for them. But our children are the recipients of us. We've given them everything. And so we feel everything to them. Um, John Steinbeck, uh, one of the, the many wonderful books that he wrote that I really do think should be books that most of you have read. Uh, one of them is called East of Eden. And in chapter 22, at the very beginning of chapter 22, just listen to these beautiful sentences. Uh, okay, so there's this guy called Adam who has two little twin boys. And I don't want to tell you too much because I'm really hoping, if you haven't read East of Eden, I'm hoping you'll take my advice and uh, get yourself a copy and read it. It's, it's, a, it's a big book, so you, don't, you know, it's not an overnight read, but... Uh, uh, it's, it's a book that'll leave you uplifted and you'll get far more out of it than you read, than you get out of reading the latest spy thriller. Not that there's anything wrong with relaxing with a spy thriller, but, uh, but you will get more out of reading East of Eden. So I don't want to tell you too much, but there's this guy, Adam, who's in very bad shape. He's got two, uh, little boys, a couple of months old. He's not been looking after them. <clears throat> there's, their mother's not around for reasons, again, I don't want to tell you. And, uh, uh, but he's got this amazing guy, a Chinese gentleman, Lee, who works for him. And this Lee begins to emerge through the pages of the book as a remarkable human being. And um, at the moment, it turns out that Adam is not looking after his little boys, but his servant, Lee, is. And um, he, uh, he has a neighbor called Samuel Hamilton, who's also a remarkable human being. And Samuel Hamilton has developed something of a relationship with Mr. Lee. But anyway, here, in, I just wanted to show you this bit where so gently and so subtly, John Steinbeck captures this idea that the more we do for others, the more we feel committed to them, the more love we feel for those we do things for. And so, um, um, uh, for a long time, Lee tried to stimulate Adam to awareness. But Lee was a busy man. He cooked and washed. He bathed the twins and fed them. Through his hard and constant work, he grew fond of the two little boys. He talked to them in Cantonese, etc., etc. But do you catch that? It's so easy to just read past it and miss out on the genius insights of John Steinbeck. It's particularly through his hard work taking care of these two little boys that he grew fond of them. It's not that he was fond of them and therefore he took care of them. He took care of them out of a sense of duty, and the result was he became really fond of them. It's, um, it's, 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 it's very beautiful. Quick break. Uh, the website today... You know, normally I tell you it's rabbidaniellappin.com, but I'd like you to go to the American Alliance of Jews and Christians webpage, aajc.org, the aajc.org, 
and AAJC, got it? American Alliance Jews and Christians dot org. Um, it's a 5013C, it's a non-profit organization, and uh, it uh, advocates for a set of values based on Judeo-Christian biblical traditions, and, um, and in so doing, it builds bridges between Jews and Christians. Uh, as you know, if you are a regular listener to the show, you know that I think that the titanic cultural struggle we find ourselves in, whether it's in Europe or in, or in America or in Canada or any, virtually almost anywhere today, is an alliance between liberalism and fundamentalist Islam, oddly enough, and on the other side, an alliance of Jews and Christians who take their faiths seriously and see their faiths as having had a great deal to do with the emergence of Western civilization. Uh, you, you just think about a thing like marriage, and you wonder, you know, where did it come from? Right? Did, uh, did a man invent marriage? I don't think so, right, because it's hardly in his short-term interests. Uh, did a wo woman invent marriage? Well, how did she possibly sell it to guys? Hey, uh, Fred, I got this great idea. Uh, from now onwards, you have nothing to do with any other women. You just take care of me. It's just me and you, Fred. And when I have a baby, you look after me and never, no other women, Fred, just me. You know, come back, Fred, where are you running? And there's a cloud of dust on the horizon, right? Uh, how does it come about? Well, if you probe both the geography and the uh, timeline, uh, you discover when the marriage came out of the Bible, and it spread and became foundational to Western civilization. I think it's fair to say that had marriage never caught on, I don't think there would be a Western civilization. Now, a lot of people will disagree with me. Oh, Western civilization is built on uh, technology and finance, and that would have happened anyway. I actually don't think it would have. And one of the proofs of that is that um, uh, technology and finance never, ever grew in countries that were never touched by the Bible until, uh, until the 19th century. Africa, uh, other than very small pockets, for the most part, Africa didn't develop finance and technology, right? Not because Africans were inferior, of course not. No, because Africa didn't have marriage and a few other things. But that's really what it is. So... Um, American Alliance of Jews and Christians does the advocating for exactly what it says, the, the Alliance of Jews and Christians, except we're expanding outside the United States of America, and uh, we need support, like every other organization. If you think that what we're doing is in any way valuable, we would very much appreciate your going to the website and making a donation this, uh, this week. Uh, and I'm I'm talking about the the week of uh, the week after Thanksgiving 2018. Uh, that is Giving Week, meaning that uh, your gift gets matched and doubled in some cases. So we really appreciate that very very much indeed. If you find yourself pulled in any way to support the work, it's my privilege to participate in. I would greatly appreciate you going to the website and doing whatever your heart leads you to do. Okay, your rabbi, back in a moment.
Welcome back, everybody. And uh, as I pointed out uh, closer to the beginning of today's show, even little children are being indoctrinated to believe certain things about sex, about romantic love, and and so on. Uh, the the idea that uh, well, Madame Curie fell in love with this married man. What's there to be done? Uh, I think I've told you that my favorite question now that I ask people, whether it's somebody I'm sitting next to on the airplane or somebody who comes up to me at a speech, um, but my favorite question now is, um, could you tell me in which book of the Bible do we find the words, and thou shalt follow thine heart? And i got to tell you that... um, you know, maybe I'm picking well or badly, but uh, a majority of people so far in my own totally unscientific survey um, answered something like, you know I, know, I know it's somewhere. I've seen it. I just don't know. I can't remember which book it's in. Um, is, it, is, it, is it John? <laughs> and I think, no, no. Oh, they, oh, it's Old Testament, right? No, not exactly. Um, not only does it not say anywhere in the Bible that you should follow your heart, it actually says explicitly you should not go astray after your heart. So uh, there is a lot of indoctrination. There's a lot of misinformation out there on these topics for children, and it's, it's no surprise if uh, adults get impacted as well by this. Uh, George Orwell, in his book 1984, spoke about the fact that uh, what tyrannical regimes do is they distort the truth, and they make it so that citizens have to accept that black is white, that false is true, that uh, two and two equals five, not four. And you can see, you know, we're at that point now where people are frightened to say that there are two genders, male and female. Uh, People are frightened to say that the color of a person's skin is immaterial and irrelevant. Uh, People have been intimidated into accepting lies as truth. I want to read something to you from, these are a few uh, sentences from Ayn Rand's book, Atlas Shrugged. Now, I'm not reading it to you on the basis of suggesting that this is carved in granite and this is absolute truth and every one of these sentences is 100% true that you can live by. I'm not saying that. I'm saying it's a very refreshing change from everything you hear out there. Virtually anything you pick up from current literature, movies, television – about sex, marriage, and money are wrong, just plain wrong. And so here is Ayn Rand uh, contradicting much of what's out there, and she's right to do so, but not necessarily all her conclusions are correct. Anyway, I think it's worth hearing it anyway. It's from Atlas Shrugged. And uh, the sentences are not in sequence. I'm leaving out a whole lot just because I don't want to spend a lot of time reading but uh, I, uh, all the sentences are uh, from Atlas Shrugged, 
and the way I've, uh, I'm reading them in no way distorts the meaning of the passage in any, any, any way at all. Here it goes. A man's sexual choice, oh, I should say this is probably another one of those areas where, um, where I said maybe you don't want little kids to be listening. Um, a man's sexual choice is the result and the sum of his fundamental convictions. Show me the woman he sleeps with, and I will tell you his valuation of himself. He will always be attracted to the woman who reflects his deepest vision of himself, the woman whose surrender permits him to experience or to fake a sense of self-esteem. The man who is proudly certain of his own value will want the highest type of woman he can find, the woman he admires, the strongest, the hardest to conquer, because only the possession of a heroine will give him a sense of achievement, not the possession of a brainless slut. There is no conflict between the standards of his mind and the desire of his body. Love is our response to our highest value and can be nothing else. Quite good, isn't it? Now, I'd like to give you a few principles uh, from ancient Jewish wisdom on money and marriage, mostly marriage. And I'm going to tell you principles that anyone can apply practically uh, rather than any specific strategies for your specific life. Okay? Um, in other words, let me, let me give you an, an example. For instance, if you wanted to build a bridge, I would tell you the permanent principles of gravity's pull. I would tell you about the weight and strength of different building materials. You know, I'll tell you steel and concrete and reinforced concrete and aluminum. I'd give you a, a whole list of weight and strengths of materials. I would tell you about the force exerted by the wind. And there you pretty much have everything you need to know to build your bridge. But um, there's, there's, there's about seven or 800,000 bridges in the world today. Um, and for the most part, none of them are the same as any others. Almost every bridge is unique. And so if I give, let's imagine there's five people in my audience, and I teach each of the five people, I teach you all about gravity, uh, uh, material strength and weight, uh, wind force, and maybe, you know, maybe just a couple of other equations. Uh, you at that point have got everything you need to know to go ahead and build your bridge. But you're all going to end up with your own unique, different-looking bridge. One of you might choose a suspension with two end towers like the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. Um, you might choose a triangular truss bridge like, you know, old-fashioned railway bridges over the Mississippi. Um, you might build a sort of a suspension bridge with one single tower in the middle. Or maybe you'll go with a seven-mast cable-stayed bridge. They just built one of those in southern France near Milau. Uh, it's something to see. It's like 300, 400 feet off the floor of the valley, and it's built. It's it's quite magnificent. It looks absolutely amazing. Um, or you might build a single pylon cable-stayed bridge, uh, 
like, you know what, this is also one worth looking at, the Ada Bridge, ADA, the Ada Bridge in Belgrade. They just built it in Serbia. Uh, it's got a single pylon. It's just like one big tower, more than 600 feet high, and all the cables come down from that to support the roadbed. It's quite amazing, and it's not symmetrical, and so they've had to make the, the roadbed on the long part out of lighter material than the roadbed on the, uh, the shorter parts, those that should balance. Uh, or the, the longest cable bridge in the world, which is the five-mile-long Sutong Bridge over the Yangtze River in China with the supporting cables carried by two masts that are a 1,000 feet high. Every one of these and every other bridge uh, was built with my permanent principles, restricting the designer's imagination and also supporting it. So in other words... Once you know these rules that I've told you, your imagination is free. Go ahead, break a leg, build, build a bridge that, that's beautiful, build a bridge that's practical, build a bridge that's economical. Uh, whatever your priority is, go ahead. As long as you remember weight and strength of materials, gravity, wind force, and um, that's basically it. I mean, a, there may be one, but th those are basically, once you've got that down, you are free to design a bridge of however you want. Do you see where I'm going here? Once you understand the basic principles of ancient Jewish wisdom on marriage, shall we say, you're free to go ahead and build your marriage. Now, it's going to resemble my marriage and John's marriage and Janet's marriage to the extent that all bridges resemble one another, right? They all have a place, they all cross some sort of a gap. And they all have something to walk on or drive on. So, you know, yes, they all resemble one another and all marriages resemble one another. But they are far more different than they are alike. And in that sense, marriages are all unique as well because they, you are free to build your marriage as long as you have these basic permanent principles of ancient Jewish wisdom. So one designer on a bridge uh, might decide to use super strong but very expensive material and thereby save on the amount of reinforcing and foundational work needed. Others will go ahead and build a bridge that uh, will depend upon sheer massive weight to provide stability. That's fine. You can achieve the necessary ends of stability on your bridge in different ways. But every single bridge will take into account all these permanent principles. And every marriage is different, but they are all restricted and also supported by the same set of principles. And one marriage can emphasize one principle heavily while making little use of the other principle, but no principle can be completely ignored. None of these principles of marriage can be completely ignored in any stable marriage. Um, quick break, and then we'll wrap up uh, the um, uh, giving. It's giving week, and particularly giving Tuesday, right? It's uh, Tuesday, the first Tuesday after Thanksgiving. Uh, if you give a gift on PayPal and you get in under PayPal, PayPal will keep um, matching until they hit $7 million in gifts. So that probably probably happens fairly early, but there is matching going on elsewhere as well. And uh, the organization is the American Alliance of Jews and Christians, which I have the privilege of serving. And it's aajc.org. And um, 
uh, we one of the things we work at is uh, contradicting and um, dismantling the false equation that Judaism equals liberalism. Every now and then we find that a pastor or a Christian political candidate gets attacked for being anti-Semitic because they're actually conservative. Uh, we, we went to the rescue of a politician in uh, North Carolina who was uh, attacked by the Jewish secular Jewish community uh, because he opposed abortion, and he was said to be anti-Semitic for opposing abortion. And uh, we sent people out there to do uh, press conferences and to stand in support with him. Uh, we had um, um, uh, two Jewish people got elected to a school board in Texas, and the very first thing they did, and again, look, I'm, I'm not proud of these things, but um, a large part of self-identified American Jews are liberal and secular. Uh, the first thing these two Jewish members of the new school board in Texas did was start uh, condom training in the middle school. Well, needless to say, um, the next time the election came around, there was a concerted campaign by all conservatives, mostly Christian but some Jewish, to get rid of these two, who immediately screamed anti-Semitism. And once again, the American Alliance of Jews and Christians sent people to, um, uh, to Texas in order to stand up for them and to explain that that's how elections work. Uh, screaming anti-Semitism is not uh, valid, not legitimate, and in this case, people had a very good reason for wanting those two Jewish members of the school board. It just so happens that uh, that's been quite a lot of the work we've been doing lately. Somebody wrote to us uh, to, along with a gift recently and, uh, and asked um, how we feel about uh, Jewish liberals. And, um, and the answer is the same. You know, liberalism in its destructive, secular, fundamentalist form is uh, anathema no matter who it comes from. The issue is not who's saying it or who's doing it. The issue is the doctrine itself, which is highly destructive. So uh, that's what we fight. It's the American Alliance of Jews and Christians. Head over to the AAJC.org, and uh, if you feel called to make a gift to support our work, I'd be very grateful. Thanks so much. Be back with you in a moment for a wrap-up. We are back. It is the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Thanks for being with us for this last part of today's show. And again, I thank you for uh, helping to promote the show, telling people about it. Uh, you, know, you know, and I don't mean sort of mindless flailing around just uh, telling anybody or everybody. I know that's not what you're doing. It doesn't make any sense. But um, you obviously are telling folks who are like-minded, people who think like you and who look at the world like you and are uh, more than likely to be enthusiastic about things similar to those things that enthuse you. And if the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show is one of those things, so much the better. Okay, so um, from looking at the figures and, and one set of of data that uh, not only the United States but most countries really have down well is information on people's heights. And, 
as a result of that, we know that the reason that the majority, not all, but that the majority of couples, the man is taller than the woman, is not attributable just to the fact that on, in, on the mean, men are taller than women are. No, that's not what it's about. Uh, because the number of couples where the man would be taller than the woman if height played no role at all in people's mate selection strategies, then the number of couples where the man is taller than the woman would be much lower than it actually is. Uh, it is the way it is because either we know one of three things. Either men select women shorter than they, women select men taller than they are, or both. Those are the only possibilities. Uh, in actuality, as the result of countless surveys, I mean, this is, it's like, I, I really think that university psychology departments, when they got nothing to do, look around the room and say, yeah, you know what, probably time for another survey on people's attitudes about height. And as a result of these surveys, we know, we know that, um, that uh, women do look for guys who are taller than they are. They also tend to look for guys who are uh, smarter than they are, and they also tend to look for guys with more money than they have. All right, so... Um, again, I'm not going to. I'm not going to issue the caveats and the apologies and the uh, excuses and saying I know that's not all women. Fine, uh, I understand obviously the extent to which the culture has tried to silence uh, simple truths about how the world really works, and uh, and that's just tough luck. Um, what I recommend you do is stow away your indignation and just ask yourselves if from your experience in life is this uh, that I'm telling you true or not true. Uh, I get tired of the women's magazines I see from time to time asking the same question, why are men intimidated by smart women? Uh, and I've explained in the past, no, we're, we're absolutely not intimidated by smart women at all. Uh, it's just that we don't like marrying women who are too masculine. We like marrying feminine women. And uh, it doesn't mean that feminine women are dumb, and nobody's talking about smartness. They're talking about education level. And the truth is, yes, I, I don't think most of us do not want to marry women who have devoted uh, the, the, the last 15 years of their life to attaining academic degrees. There are a lot of reasons we're not crazy about that. We're not frightened. We're not intimidated. It's just that uh, we don't want to marry you. That's all in most cases. And uh, women, most women, and certainly feminine women, are smart enough to realize that themselves. And uh, the more feminine a woman is, the more she will want to marry a guy taller than her, if possible. I mean, she's not going to miss out on a great husband just because he's of his height. But in general, if the options are there, uh, a feminine woman will favor a man who is taller, a man who is richer, and a man who is smarter, or if you like, more. And these are not the same things by any means, but uh, perhaps more highly educated than she is. And sometimes those are for the same reasons. For instance... We all know that uh, 
in politics, it's very unusual for the shorter candidate to win. If, if, if there are different candidates for president, in American elections, uh, if I tell you that in 80% of the cases the taller candidate wins, uh, I haven't measured it myself, but I'm about right. It's, it's that many. Uh, it is very unusual for the shorter candidate to win. And when that does happen, like Dwight Eisenhower, uh, there's a very good reason for it. But um, we all know that uh, men's height plays a role in leadership. Uh, there are some studies which are fairly persuasive that uh, taller men, men six foot plus, have an earnings premium over their lifetime in their careers. And again, these things are not shocking or hard to understand. And I assure you, we do not have to go to evolutionary biology to understand them or explain them. Not at all. Uh, what we have to go to is a spiritual reality, which is that most women, and the more feminine a woman is, the more true this is, want to look up to their husbands. And uh, yes, there is a spiritual dimension to it. There's also a physical dimension. Looking up to their husband makes a woman feel good. Now, this obviously places enormous obligations on a man. You've got to be worthwhile being looked up to, right? A, a feminine woman takes an enormous amount of pleasure, spiritual, emotional, and physical, in surrendering herself to a worthy man. But if the man has not taken the steps and is not taking the steps to make himself worthy and keep himself worthy, then he is depriving his wife of the act of submission and surrender. And again, I'm, I'm assuming, and I take it as a given, that the audience of this show is sufficiently savvy uh, to understand what I mean when I use words like surrender or submission. Uh, and it's not in any way intended and, not, and, and is not, in fact, in any way insulting. Uh, to women. I, I'm sure that you all do understand that. But um, this is one of the reasons that women find self-confidence in a man sexy. Not self-esteem, by the way. You know, Self-esteem is like conceit. Self-esteem is totally disconnected from anything you've done to achieve it, and it's just how you feel about yourself. So it's arrogance and conceit. I'm, I'm very down on self-esteem. But self-confidence... That's enormously uh, popular and very, uh, very appealing to women. Uh, in terms of self-discipline, right? One of the ways that a woman senses that a man is worthy of her um, is when she sees him as being a man of, of great self-discipline. How he throws himself into his work, how he gets up in the morning. I know it sounds funny, and I've, I've, I've said it before, and I, I'm, I've had people question me on this because it, it rattles people, but um, the snooze bar on an alarm clock is uh, damaging to marriage if used by a man because what you're essentially saying is you don't have the discipline to get up when the alarm clock goes off. And... Uh, it's, it is damaging to marriage because on a subconscious level, I'm not saying your wife notices and narrows her eyes as she lies in the bed looking at you, uh, rolling over again. No, 
but it's subconscious. She sees a man who is not exhibiting self-discipline and self-control. And uh, those things are destructive, damaging to marriage. So if we're talking about happy wife, happy life, as you can see, there's a lot more to this than just constantly buying things for your wife or giving her money or giving her gifts. All of those things have their place, obviously. But in terms of um, happiness and fulfillment, a wife feeling fulfilled in a marriage, um, it's, it's a lot of things. I mean, obviously, children are a part of that. Um, a husband who plays a role as a father is part of that. Uh, a husband she truly can look up to and feels uh, a worthy person to conquer her, if you like. Uh, all of those things bring happiness, and they are never spoken about. When people say, oh, blithely, happy wife, happy life, uh, and nobody talks about some of the, the deeper more complicated things that are necessary in order for a wife to be happy. And uh, really, these are things that men should begin to understand long before they get married. It's a real shame that for so many men, it's learning on the job. But for many men, uh, their fathers have uh, neglected the job if they have fathers. If they do, the fathers neglect the job of educating them as to how to have a happy wife. And uh, for many people, it's, it's replicating what you saw in your own family. Subconsciously, your default is to do what you saw your father doing, and that may or may not have been terrific. Uh, but unfortunately, the, uh, the, the, the many of these timeless truths are available only through a teacher or in the case of what I'm working on, a book, and that makes everything different. Uh, having it available, using it, ideally before you even get married to begin with. That's, that would be the ideal. And I'm certainly going to promote my new book uh, on this topic to people who, to men who are not yet married and women not yet married. At any rate, that's as far as we're going to go with today's show. Um, it is, the f for the first Tuesday after Thanksgiving, it is a, a special Giving Tuesday. Uh, your gifts are, uh, are matched by, pay by PayPal and Facebook. So if you give on PayPal or Facebook to the American Alliance of Jews and Christians, there is double the benefit. Um, the website, aajc.org, American Alliance of Jews and Christians, aajc.org. And uh, if you find yourself pulled uh, to support our work, much appreciation. And if not, that's also okay. Everybody gives to, to what they find most meaningful and in the quantities that make most sense for them. And that's how, how it should be. If you are, however, going to give to the American Alliance of Jews and Christians, Tuesday the 27th is a really good time to do it. And... Um, it is also great if you can do it through PayPal and or through Facebook. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin, and I want to wish you really good times in the week ahead in the matters concerning your friendship, your faith, your finances, and uh, indeed your family as well. That's what we're talking about, marriage and family. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin, everybody. Thanks for listening. God bless. 
Spilling ancient solutions to modern problems in areas of family, faith, friendship, and finance. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, On Demand, on the Blaze Radio Network.